That's awesome. Yeah, clap. You can clap for that. You uh, may or may not know, just depending upon how long you've been around here at Revolution, uh, as of yesterday, I have been here for 11 years, which is crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I didn't say that for a cheap clap, but I do appreciate it, though. I do appreciate that. But we made a decision about, I wouldn't say that was a cheap clap, by the way. I, I'm very honored. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but I was just saying I wasn't doing it for that. You got, we're good. We're good. All right. All right. So. Pastor David did a great job last week, didn't he? So, yes. Okay, let's move on. But what I was saying was, you may not know, about 10 years ago, we made a decision as a church to do what we ask you to do, what the Bible asks us all to do, which is to tie, to set apart 10% of all that we bring in and, and give it, and, and that is the Lord's. And so we made a decision 10 years ago to set aside 10% of all the money that comes in to Revolution Church and give it to missions and multiplication beyond our church. And so that involves our outreach partners. One of the biggest things it involves and the thing that the area that I'm probably the most excited about is the area of multiplication, which is our vision, which includes church planting. And so that is one of our church planners, Pastor Scott and Tammy, and their church just celebrated a one-year anniversary about a month and a half ago. And so you guys, those of you that give faithfully around here, have been a huge part of supporting and launching and building their church. And what's been amazing is their church is about a mile just west of the Mercedes-Benz in Atlanta, and their church is making a huge impact in the community. And, and this year, with all the crazy stuff that has gone on in our city, um, they were so integral in being a part of bringing the gospel to a very broken area during a very broken time. And one of the greatest joys I've had this year is we had a big prayer rally as a bunch of churches in Atlanta this summer. And Scott, our Pastor Scott, one of our church planners, was on stage helping lead that entire thing. And I got to turn to people in our church who were there praying with us and say, man, that's our church planter right there who's leading out in this crazy season. And so thank you for your generosity. We're going to be celebrating some stories over these next few weeks because we want you to know how your giving is making such a big difference and, and multiplying beyond just the work of Revolution Church here in, in Canton and in Jasper, also in Atlanta and Kenya and to the ends of the earth. So thank you, church, for being so generous in that. Yeah. All right, if you got a Bible, open it up to Matthew. Not Matthew, golly. Micah chapter six. Man, I've been off for a week. Not off, but I didn't preach. You get what I'm saying, all right? Micah chapter six. And we are going to, we're now in a new chapter. David, Pastor David, wrapped up uh, chapter five for us last week. And like I said, he did a fantastic job. And this week we're gonna see in Micah chapter six, verses one through eight, that the pivotal verse of the entire book, Micah six, eight, is what we're going to see because as I have said many times in this series so far, Micah chapter six, verse eight, is what the Lord's will is. It was the entire purpose of why Micah the prophet was writing this letter because he wanted them to know what God wanted and what God was doing and why God was judging them because they were failing to live up to what God wanted. And so we're going to spend this week and next week in chapter six, because again, I don't want us to miss it. And so as we jump in, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. All right, pray with me. Father, we want to stop and always acknowledge the fact that without you, God, we are literally helpless but God, thank you for the fact that when we can acknowledge our helplessness, that you help us because it honors you. It honors you, God, for you to help us. And that's what we want to do. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. And so, God, we come before you today recognizing our inability to change ourselves, recognizing our inability to even listen well or to see the truth that is in your word. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to listen. You would help us to hear. You would help us to see. And ultimately, God, that you would fill us with your spirit so that we can walk in the ways that you have laid out for us here in Micah chapter 6. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's do the first couple of verses here because, again, this is going to kind of give a purpose statement, if you will, for the entire letter of why the prophet Micah wrote this. So let's look at the first three verses, and it says this. Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment 
of the Lord. Now that's an important phrase. This is legal language that God is using here. The indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Verse three, now he speaks in the first person. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. So remember the the whole point of this this letter that this prophet is writing here to the people of Israel, it's because they were living out what has been called the sin of Jacob. And if you were here during our Welcome to the Wrestle series, we talked about what the sin of Jacob was. It was the doubleness. It was the duplicity. It was the, the, he was two people. He was divided within himself. And so God had to wrestle that out of him. And now what we see is that sin, even though God wrestled it out of Jacob, changed his name into Israel, that the generations following Jacob were wrestling with the same sin. And so now God is wrestling with a group of people. He doesn't just wrestle with a person. He wrestles with a group of people. And he's wrestling with a group of people because that sin has reproduced itself to the point to where the people of God now are actually two peoples. They are two nations. They were two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they had divided. And I've mentioned to you several times the reason why I felt like God wanted us to do this this message, this book during this season is because we're always on the cusp as a people. And I'm not just referring to the nation because this letter isn't written to America as a nation. It's written to the people of God, which was Israel, who, yes, happened to be a nation at that time. And so for us today, it applies to the church. And the point was, as a church, as a people, as the people of God, we don't want to be two. We don't want to be divided. We don't want to disagree about what God says we should be doing. We can disagree about all kinds of other things, but not the mission and purpose of why God called us out and set us apart. And we don't want to to reproduce this same sin. And so God is calling this out in them, and this is the judgment part where he's using, again, legal language, and he's saying, listen, I have an indictment against you. And the reason why this is so important for us to understand, even though a lot of times to our 21st century, really modern, postmodern American ears is like, man, I don't don't like the idea of feeling guilty or the idea of there's an, an indictment on you. And I don't know if you've ever been through that legal process, but when, when there's an indictment handed down, again, this is somebody saying, hey, you're guilty. You have done something wrong. And I don't know about you, but I don't like that feeling. I don't like that feeling of like, man, I'm guilty. What have I, I done? But what we need to understand here is when it comes to the Lord, we want a God who calls out guilt. The reason is because that shows he is just, he is right. I'll never forget years ago, in fact, over a decade ago now, when Lindsay and I were still living in Texas, we were living in South Texas before we moved here to Georgia, and we went to a movie uh, one night. We were going to watch this movie. Someone told us this movie was funny, so we went to go watch it. It actually wasn't that funny. We actually walked out like 30 minutes into it because it was so bad. But prior to that movie, we were, we walked in, we're getting tickets and you know, you go, remember back when we went to movies, right? And you go to the concession stand and this one concession stand had this like row of like candy and it was like a candy store. You have those boxes, uh, like clear plastic, uh, plexiglass and you have candy in there and you, you know, dip it out and into a bag and get your candy. Like wasn't COVID safe at all back then. And I was sitting there and this little kid walks up and I think it was gummy worms. He opens up the lid, gets a fistful of gummy worms, closes the lid and takes off. And I remember thinking, that little devil, right? Where's his mama? Where's his daddy? And they weren't paying attention at all. Well, right at that point in time, the manager walks by. And the reason why I knew he was a manager is because he had on a suit and a name tag that said manager. And so I said, sir, you see that little kid right there? He just stole some of your gummy worms. He just stuck his hand in there, which is gross in and of itself. He didn't even use the thing or a bag. I mean, come on, kid, get some manners. And, and he just is eating it. And he just, he just stole it from you. And the manager, I kid you not, looks at the thing, looks at me, and he's like, oh, and walks off. And immediately in that point in time, I'm mad at the kid and mad at the manager. And it's not even my movie theater. And then something hit me. It's one thing for the kid to break the law, 
to sin. He's guilty. He, I had an indictment against him now. But who was worse, the kid or the manager? The answer is yes, right? They're, they're both equally bad. And here's what I want you to see. The manager didn't do anything willfully wrong in the sense of stealing, but the fact that he didn't chase after that kid and trip him and take the gummy worms, right? He didn't, he didn't have an indictment against the kid. He didn't judge the kid. It showed. Now, again, I'm sure he probably had to deal with this all the time, and he was on to fix the popcorn machine. I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what his day was like. But the point is this. You and I don't want a God who doesn't hand out indictments, who doesn't hand out guilt. And what God is doing here with his people is the exact same thing that he does with each and every one of us. It's like, man, we have made a mistake. We have failed to live up to what God has called us to do, which is Micah 6, 8, we'll get to in just a second. But the reason why I'm stressing this is because if we're not careful in church, we can actually avoid church like the manager, or avoid God or avoid religion or avoid the Bible because you're like, oh, it makes me feel guilty. I don't like feeling guilty because the opposite of guilt is innocence. But there's another reason that I think that we don't like to talk about guilt. And it's another Bible word that's different than the idea of guilt. It's the idea of shame. See, there's guilt and there's shame. And the opposite of guilt, I've already told you, is innocence because guilt refers, refers to an act. But the opposite of shame is not innocence. Here's what's crazy. Biblically speaking, the opposite of shame is glory. And so if I were to put these on a continuum, guilt and shame are two different things, but they're related because guilt means there's a law or there's a standard and I broke it. So therefore I am not innocent. I'm guilty. But shame goes, moves in the other direction. And shame is the idea of not that I did something, but I am something. And I fail to live up to the glory that God called me to. And here's why I'm stressing this aspect is because so often when we think about God and we think about the indictments of God, we only see it from a guilt standpoint. That God says we're guilty. But one of the things that's been so helpful for me in my growth and my walk with Christ is to understand that the reason why God calls out sin in my life is not just because he likes declaring me guilty. It's because he's calling me into more glory that my sin is robbing me from. He's calling me into glory. He's calling me into or up to, if we will, as you'll see in just a second, to the standard of life that he wants for me. Another way to say it is God is calling us into good. He's calling us into something better, higher, that's actually going to bring us more joy. And so therefore, if he doesn't call out our sin, we'll keep living life at the bottom where he's calling us up to the top. He's calling us up into higher, into something that is better for us. Look at, look at how he talks here in verse four and five. This will help you hopefully understand what I'm getting at. He says, for I brought you, what's that next word there? Up. Yes, a great Disney movie, but long before that, God was in the up business. Let's try that again. For I brought you what? Up. Now, if you're new or watching online, watching in Jasper, it doesn't matter. I like for you to call and respond, especially when it's cold, all right? And the only way to deal with the cold is let's heat it up in here, all right? Let's try this again. For I brought you what? Up. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. See, when God is handing out in his indictment to them, what he's saying is, yes, you're guilty. You're guilty. But what you forgot is you used to be dead. You used to be enslaved. And I called you up out of that. And the reason why I called you up out of that is not for you just to return right back to the very thing that was killing you. So God calls us up out, like Proverbs said, and we're like dogs who return back to the vomit. You're like, why do dogs do that? Because they're dogs. They're dumb, right? 
I don't send me emails about how your dog's not dumb. That's not the point of the sermon. The point is this. Why does God call out sin? Why does he call out indictment? Why does he exercise judgment? Because he loves us more than that manager loved that little kid. Because it wasn't just that that little kid had broke the law by stealing the gummy worms. It was that if that little kid lived his life breaking the law, stealing gummy worms, and he just moved on and on and on into greater things, then he was going to miss out on what was life. See, here's what I want you to see, the kind of God we have. The kind of God we have is the kind of God who brings us up. Now, let me help you understand what that phrase means there, because this idea here of brought you up in Hebrew has some wordplay that we don't get in English. And the reason is, is because in verse three, when he says, how have I wearied you? God is saying to them, listen, you're the one who's guilty. I'm not, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. You have. And this idea of weariness versus brought up is the same Hebrew word same Hebrew root, going different directions. So the idea of wearied is to go down. The idea of wearied is, is something that weighs you down. And this year, like we understand weariness to another level, right? Because things have weighed us down. And God is saying to them, listen, you're the one who took yourself on a downward trajectory. That wasn't me. I'm the one who saved you from that and took you to an upward trajectory. I brought you up. And so here's what God, again, this is the will of God. This is the heart of God. This is the kind of God he is. He says, I brought you up from what? From slavery. Now, the people of God in that time were literal slaves for 400 years. Now, unfortunately, in our country, we know about that as well. But metaphorically speaking, God uses this to talk about another kind of slavery because there's human physical slavery, yes, but there's also spiritual slavery. See, it wasn't just that they were slaves to another person. They were slaves to another power. And what is slavery? Slavery, unfortunately, is the act of subjugating someone and robbing from them the glory that God created in them as image bearers. See, slavery is when I treat someone less than human, like property. And so here's what happens. They were being enslaved literally like property, but the same thing also happens spiritually speaking. See, there are powers and principalities, and I've done this throughout this entire year, that are at play behind all the powers that we can see on the planet. And what is the goal of those spiritual powers? To rob you and I from the glory that God created in us when he made us in his image. To make us feel like, think like we are less than what God made us to be. That's the idea of shame. Which is why after Adam and Eve sinned, not only did they break the law, but when God shows up in Genesis 3, Adam says, we were naked, so we hid because we were ashamed. See, the moment they broke the law, they were guilty, yes, but then the devil heaped up on shame to them and tried to get them to stay in that place. And God walks in and says, who told you that? And then God covers them. See, that act of God covering them. Now, was that actual human flesh that God covered them with and skin? Or was that leaves? and I don't know. We'll find out when we get there. But here's the point. God not only dealt with their guilt, but he was dealing with their shame too and saying, listen, you just entered yourself willfully into the slavery of another power who doesn't care about you, but I am here to bring you up out of it. And this phrase, here's what's even better. This phrase brought you out or brought you up in the Hebrew, not only is the, again, the opposite of weary down. See, Adam and Eve wearied themselves. They burdened themselves and God brought them up. But what's even better is God didn't ask them. And he, by definition, doesn't ask us to help him in the bringing up process. This is written in such a way in Hebrew. I'm going to read some stuff. Follow me here. I'm going to nerd out a little bit on words for a second. Then I'll explain it to you. All right. 
But in the biblical Hebrew, the stem of the word, in this instance, the word brought up, refers to the relate. Now listen to this. The relationship of the verb's subject to the action of the verb. What does that mean? It's saying this stem this, that's written in biblical Hebrew, who's the one that's doing the action? The subject is. Now, goes a step further. The subject of the verb, now this one is written in what's called the hyphil stem or the voice. It refers, now listen to this. It causes the object of the verb to participate in the action of the verb as a sort of undersubject or secondary subject. What does that mean? It means that God brought us up. And this is written in the, listen, first person, singular, active, hyphil, which remember, hyphil shows the relationship of who's doing the work. So in case you ever wondered how you were brought up, you were brought up because a person, first person, singular, was active. He brought you up. Now, here's what's crazy. And he caused you to participate. He caused you to participate. Why am I nerding out on this? Here's why. God is the type of God who even when we are guilty in our sin and we are beset with shame that we didn't live up to the glory that God called us to, he doesn't leave us there. Not only does he not leave us there, but he doesn't ask us to participate with him to bring us up out. Now, this is the part where I can ruffle some feathers theologically speaking, but hang with me here. Because ultimately what I'm talking about is the act of salvation. Is our salvation due to the fact that God did something or that we and God did something? That we did it together or that God did it alone? Now, I'm of the theological persuasion that God did it alone. And that is the theological, uh, the, the word for that is monergism, which means mono, which is one. The opposite of that is the word synergism, which means two working together to cause something to happen. And, and people will argue with me about this. And we argue about this all the time. Not argue, but have debates. What about this? What about this? I don't know what it all means. Here's what I know. One of these two ways glorifies God more than the other. So I'm going to go with the one who glorifies God the most. Why? And this is where people split hairs. I will tell people, listen, I'm not saying I didn't have anything to do with it. What I'm saying is everything that I did have to do it, he made able for me to do it. That's the difference. He caused me to participate in. See, there's some, there's some theologies that, that kind of go around the church that never came out of the Bible or phrases or just cliche Christian things that I didn't grow up in the church knowing. And when people told them to me, I'm like, well, that sounds dumb. Things like this. God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard of that one? Yeah, it's in first Nebuchadnezzar. Ain't a book in the Bible. In case you didn't know. Just, just think of a word and then add ayah on the end of it. It ain't there. Or I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. And see, this is where, again, and I, I, this is like thousands of years of church history that I'm talking about and trying to symbolize, symbolize, simplify for you in one phrase. Because the idea is, well, did I choose God or did God choose me? Did, did, did I get saved because I responded in faith and then he saved me or he regenerated me and then I responded in faith? Listen, you and I can disagree about the order of those things. And again, I have a thought process on how it happens, but here's what I want you to understand. Even if you put a lot of weight on your choice, I want you to hear me say, your choice was caused by God. Because you would have never chose him. Why? Because you were dead. See, the Bible says you were dead in trespasses and sins. And dead people, I don't know if you know this, don't do much. So here's what God is saying. He's saying, you're... You've now repeated the same guilt that I saved you from, and you have forgotten the fact that I'm the one who brought you up. I'm the one who did this for you. I'm the one who caused you to participate. And again, he's going back to when they fled Egypt. Who was the one who made that happen? It was God. You're like, well, they walked out. Yes, they did. But how did they walk out? 
by God causing them to walk out. That's how. They would have never walked out without God. So God acted. And here's what I'm saying to you. God loves you so much that not only does he want to free you from the guilt, but he wants to give you the glory with which he created you to image him with. He wants you to live into who he made you to be. Why? Because when you do that, you glorify him more. And the glory of God is what it's all about. Look at verse five. He says this, oh, my people, remember. If there is one thing that we do as Christians is we forget. Which he's calling them back to remember, remember, remember what? Look at this. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shabtim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, he's just referring to what, something that happened in their history. Not only did God bring them out, but he brought them in. And if you don't know the story, I'll recap it quickly. He brought them out of Egypt, slavery, and he takes them into the promised land. But they, go, they don't go straight to the promised land. They go east, and then they go up, and then they come back in to the promised land, crossing the Jordan. Well, the, the town of Shittim was on the east of the Jordan, and Gilgal was on the west of the Jordan. And when they were about to cross over the Jordan to go into the promised land, the king on the east side, uh, the dude there, Balak, wanted Balaam to curse them because he was so afraid that they were going to destroy him. And so he gets this dude to try to curse him and then they're going to go curse him. And if you don't know the story, again, it's just the crazy story. You can go read it in numbers. God has this donkey stop moving. And then the, the prophet who's going to go curse them, he, he, he's not moving. So he's trying to get them to come. And then he starts beating him. And then supernaturally, God gets the donkey to speak to the guy who was going to curse them and gets him to change his mind and then instead to bless them. So God was so concerned about getting his people into the glory he has for them that he made a donkey speak. And my contention is he's still doing that today. Right here, baby. He's still doing it today. And God is saying to them, listen, not only... Am I so committed to you becoming what I called you to become that I free you, but I make donkeys, animals speak to get you where I want you to be. Don't you remember that? Don't you remember that? Why? So that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So here's what I want you to see. Here's the whole connection before we get to Micah 6, 8. When you and I aren't living and walking in the ways of God, it actually robs God of his glory. Because when we are not walking in the ways of God, it's because we've forgotten how righteous God is and then others don't get to see through our actions how righteous God is. The glory of God is the point, which I'm going to give you a point here, and I've said this many, many times throughout my decade of here, but there was a document that was written many centuries ago called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And a catechism was a document that churches used to help disciple people. It's, it's like a, uh, a book, if you will, or, or like when you join a, uh, a business, you have an employee handbook. So a catechism is like the church person handbook. And the very first line of the catechism, and it was written in question-answer format, asked the question, what's the chief end of man? And what that question is, is what is the purpose of man? Why does man exist? And here it is on the screen. Question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So those two things, which is interesting because in church, a lot of times we don't even talk about these two things, but I want us always to know that anytime I'm ever talking to you about a standard that God wants us to live up to, it's not because I'm just trying to help you out, but, but in helping you out, I'm glorifying God and telling you to do the way, to do things the way he said to do them. But here's what's even better to me. One of my 
I say mentors, even though we've never met in person, but he's one of the people who have shaped me hugely, rephrased this and connected it in a way that I think is helpful for our conversation today. So I'm going to read the same statement again to you, but with one change. What is the chief end of man? Same question. Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Now here's the change. By enjoying him forever. Not and, but by. Here's the connection. What is the best way you and I can glorify God? It's by enjoying him. Well, how do we enjoy him? We enjoy him, as Jesus said, as we obey his commandments. But here's the clincher, my friends. You and I will never obey his commandments until we understand that he gave them to us for our joy. See, I didn't understand this when I first became a Christian. Everybody just told me, stop doing this, start doing this. Yes, sir. But no one ever connected that if I do this, I will actually enjoy the life that God has for me. And when I'm enjoying the life God has for me by obeying his commandments, I'm actually glorifying him that he was actually right. See, God gives us rules and regulations about how we do marriage. And this, every, every, this happens every year, multiple times a year. We tell people, here's what the Bible says marriage is. And here's how the Bible says to do it. Well, and they give us, well, this is, well, we don't, uh, okay, we can disagree about whether or not, you, you know, you think this is right or wrong, but here's what I want you to see. Do it God's way, and I promise you, you'll have more joy. You'll have more joy. And this is where we, parents, again, think about it. Isn't how this we try to reason with our kids? Hey, life's going to go better for you if you don't play out there along the yellow dotted line. I in the middle of the street. It's gonna, you're going to have more joy, I promise you. But see, what we do a lot of times is we fail to understand, again, guilt and shame. Why is God calling out our guilt, it's not just because he loves proving people wrong. It's because he's calling you into something that'll give you more joy and therefore give him more glory. See, God didn't just call them out of Egypt. He was calling them into the promised land. And so many of us live our lives in the midst of the promised land as though we're still in Egypt. And here's what I want you to see. You rob yourself of joy and you rob God of glory. So here's the, here's why Micah is saying to them, you, you want to know what happened right there in those two towns? As they were crossing over the Jordan river, you, you want to know what the king did? King was smart. He sent out some of his pretty girls and he enticed the men to have relations with them and to worship the God of Baal. What do you think the men did? Yeah, they did what most men do. They gave in. And what they failed to realize is the moment that they did that, they were robbing themselves of joy. Why? Because real joy is not found from a man having multiple wives. It's having one for a long time. That's real joy. Real joy comes when we walk with God into deeper and deeper intimacy with him and one another. And what is the devil? And then by default, what is the world trying to always call you out of? Out of that and into like, no, you should be mad. You should be upset. This happens in church all the time. Let me say it to you like this. Let me relate it to church. The more you hop around to church, to church, to church, and never go deeper, the less joy you'll have. This happens all the time. It's happened in 2020. But I'm telling you, the more you hop around, the less joy you'll have because you'll just take bitterness and cancer with you everywhere. But see, God is calling us into something higher. He's calling us up into something better that's going to glorify him and actually lead to more joy for us. And that's why I want you to see, because if we fail to do things the way God has set them up, we're actually robbing ourselves and robbing him. Now look at verse six and seven. You say, okay, well, what's, 
What's a man to do then? What's a woman to do? How do I, how do I live this out? Well, he asked the question for you. It's almost like God anticipated that you were going to have a question about this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be, ple- uh, ple- that's an important word. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Can you imagine that? I mean, we're not as farmer you know, oriented today as they were back then, but a thousand rams, that's a lot. 10,000 rivers of flowing oil. That's a lot of money. Shall I give my firstborn uh, for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What, what is, here's the, here's the thing that God is getting at. Does God want just the fruit of your wallet or the fruit of your womb? Does he just want what you can produce? Or does he want you? See, this is where a lot of people get it wrong. Now, now listen to me. Because they are overwhelmed with the shame resulting from their guilt, they try to work their way back in to relationship with God. I see this all the time. People that feel guilty, naked, so they hid, they feel shame, they're not living up into who they know God made them to be. And so they get very involved in church. It's like, I mean, we had this happen a lot. It's like people who got a for real indictment, like from the court of law. And they're like, oh, I got to come serve my way back into God's good graces. No, you don't. Why? Because God's not that cheap. I say this to you often when it comes to the subject of tithing. See, that's, one, that's what he's discussing here, tithing. Now, before you get a wise idea here, don't use this verse and quote it back to me when I said God wants us to tithe. You're like, oh, pastor, no, he doesn't want that. No, that's not the point. He's saying, I don't want just that. Which this is why I say to people all the time, if you think you have to tithe in order for God to love you or serve in order for God to love you, God's not that cheap. God doesn't just want your wallet or your womb. He wants way more. He wants you. He wants us. He wants all of us. Why? Because that is all God has ever wanted. And again, the reason why we sin is because sin promises us more joy than God. That's why you sin. Listen, my friends, I want you to understand me. You're not on a truth quest. You may think you're on a truth quest truth quest. You're not. You're on a joy quest. And the reason why you and I sin is because we believe the lie, just like Adam and Eve believed the lie, that life outside of God would actually bring them more joy, when in fact it actually only brought them more guilt and more shame. So God's trying to save us out of that, save us into his glory, into his joy. (laughs) And that's nothing less than all of us, because that's all he's ever wanted. Listen, let me say it to you like this. Do you think God created the world so that he could have a bunch of subjects that just walked in step with him for obedience sake? Do you, th- you honestly think that's why he made us? Because he, ne- because he was so emotionally needy that he needed billions of people to bow down and be like, you're awesome. No, he's not an evil dictator. Like, a lot of the people that we see running countries today, they're running it for their own glory. God didn't create us because he wanted a bunch of loyal subjects. God created us because he is in and of himself. He's three in one. He's Trinity. He's triune, which means he's one God, three persons. They had so much love within themselves. They were so self-sufficient, loving each other so well that they wanted someone just to share that with. And what I mean by that is this, not because they were needy, but because they wanted more people to experience the joy that they themselves had. So God made you and me, not for us to love him, but for him to love us. And even when our sin separated us from him and our guilt was that thing that kept us away, God says, you know what? I myself am going to bring you out. And how am I going to do it? Not by the fruit of your firstborn, but by my firstborn. Because listen, The fruit of you can't solve the root of you. 
The fruit of you can't solve the root. That's what he says. Can the fruit of my body cover the sin of my soul? No, this is spiritual. So there's nothing you and I can do in a physical worldly sense to get us back into relationship with God. Here's the good news. Quit trying then. Because God, because his glory is so great and his will for you is to walk in relationship with him, all he's ever wanted are people who reflect his glory. And they do that by enjoying him. So God made you and me to enjoy him. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? It's not going to be like angels floating around with harps like little fat people on clouds. No. It's not Cupid, my friends. It's you and I forever enjoying God face to face and his glory transforming us into another degree of glory. And every degree has more joy. And it's all and forever only that. That's what he's calling you up into. Now, all that's a setup for verse eight. Now we'll get into this more next week because I can't do a whole message and like spend like two minutes on this verse. But let me read it to you. Verse eight, he has told you, oh man, what is good. What does that mean? It means you can know because he has told you. That's the idea of revelation. How can you and I know God? Because God has chosen to reveal himself. We can know what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, that's the verse on my shirt. Yes, I wore this on purpose. It's a different translation because it says, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. But here's the connection I want you to see. Because if you don't see it, then you can just think that God is wanting us not to do this, but do this. And if we do this, then we get back into relationship with him. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. Who are the kind of people that glorify God the most by enjoying him? It's the kind of people who walk like Jesus. And how did Jesus walk? He walked justly. He walked in kindness or mercy, depending upon your translation. Some may even say steadfast love. And he walked humbly. See, God knew that you and I would never do justice without him. We would never, never love kindness and mercy without him. We would never walk humbly with him. So Jesus came to exercise justice. What is justice? Sin has to be punished, right? Justice would have been the movie theater manager stopping that kid from stealing and then punishing him for that. But God's mercy is so great that he said, I'm willing to take the justice for you. Which is the second part there, because he loves kindness and he loves it. Again, this is where I think we fail to understand who God is and the type of person that he is. He loves mercy. He loves, he, his will is to have mercy on you because he loves that. He loves you. He loves it. Why? Because it glorifies who he is and to walk humbly. So God loved us so much. God cared about justice so much. He cared about mercy so much. He cared about humbleness so much that he saved us so that we could walk in it. He brought us up out of slavery so that we could walk in it. But here's the key, and I'm going to leave you with this point. I can preach Jesus, but live Jason. Now, here's why I'm saying this, because obviously Jason's my name. I say this often. Jesus, Jason, both have five letters. But you can enter your own name. See, I can preach Jesus that God did all that, but I can live Jason. What I mean by that is this. I can say, oh, yeah, God saved me from all of that. 
but with no idea of actually living into what he saved me from and living up to what he saved me into. And here's the problem if I live like that. Here's the problem if you and I live like that. We're robbing God and we're robbing ourselves. So does God want you to do justice? Yes, he does. And what is justice? We'll get into this more next week. Justice is fairness. It is treating everyone the same. It is not having partiality, treating someone better because they're rich, treating someone better because of their skin color, treating someone worse because they're poor, treating someone worse because of their skin color. That is injustice. Justice is also caring about bringing God's will and God's ways to the world. There's a lot of injustice in the world. And this is something that, that I'm convicted as, as a pastor for us to step into more as a church. And we'll talk more about this as we move on because God has opened up some amazing ways for us to get involved in bringing justice, areas in like human trafficking and how we can get involved and help bring justice to people who are enslaved. See, God doesn't want us just to be free from slavery, but he wants us to help free others from slavery. God doesn't just want us to love the fact that he had mercy on us, but he wants us to have mercy on others. You see where I'm going with this? Why? Because in the same way he tells us to remember so that we may know, if we fail to live like this, then others won't know. Others won't know, which is interesting. Micah 6, 8, this verse. You don't want to know a very prominent place. It's hanging right now in our country. This verse stands as the motto of the alcove of religion in the reading room of the Congressional Library in Washington. This verse, Micah 6, 8. If you've ever seen National Treasure, where they go in to get those books, that's the area I'm talking about. It hangs right there. And as one theologian said, what would happen if that not only hung there, but the politicians actually lived it? Let me go a step further, friends. What would happen if that verse not only was in our Bible, but we as Christians actually lived it? Others may know. Others may know. See, God saved you because he had more joy for you, but he saved you to empower you to walk in him, to tell others so that they could be free from slavery and they have more joy too. And here's what's crazy. The more you do that, the more joy you'll have. The more you do that, more joy you'll have. So we'll get into this more next week, but I want us to leave us with this. My friends, don't misunderstand what God is doing and what his will is. He's calling you up, not only to deal with your guilt and sin, but to call you into his glory so you can enjoy him more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that you loved us enough to bring us up out of our sin and you did it alone. And now you cause us to participate with you. And that's the crazy thing is we can participate with you because you're still doing the same thing today. You're still calling people up from slavery and we get to join with you in that. Whether that's through outreach, whether that's through church planting, whether that's through loving our neighbor as ourselves, whether that's through discipling people in our church, whether that's groups or serving teams or whatever it may be, God, we are participating with you and you caused us to participate with you. But there may be some people here today, God, who are still living in that guilt and shame. And in Christ, you want to bring them up out from that. And God, I pray right now that by your spirit, you would save them. No one looking around or talking here as we close, but if you're here today and you've heard what the word of God says to you, I want you to understand something. God's will for you is not to be enslaved to your sin. God made you to glorify him by enjoying him. And the lie to you has been, you can have more joy without God. And I'm here to tell you that's not possible. 
because God made you and he knows what brings the most joy. But he loved you so much that even when you chose wrongly, he chose you in Christ to bring you up. And today you can respond in faith where God is causing you to participate with him and be saved. So if that's you, nobody looking around or talking, you want to pray and trust Christ, you can pray with me. And it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. I am a sinner. I am guilty. But I ask you to put my guilt onto Jesus, my shame onto Jesus. And I receive today his righteousness, his glory, his life. I'm trusting in Jesus alone. Thank you for loving me. Now, again, nobody looking around or talking if you're online, but primarily if you're in one of our locations right now and you've never trusted Christ, we want to know that so we can celebrate with you. So we just simply lift your hand up so we can see that. God's calling you up and out of slavery today. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. We have a gift we want to give you. In just a moment, everybody, whether you're online or in person, have an opportunity to text us your information so we know who you are. But then those of us who have trusted Christ, never forget or said in the positive, always remember that God brought you up and he's bringing you in too. Not because he's narcissistic, but because he knows that in him you can have the most joy. So whatever command he's calling you up into today, know he's doing it for your joy. Because the more you enjoy him, the more you glorify him. And that God is calling us to live this out. He cares how we walk. He doesn't want us to do injustice. He doesn't want us to hate kindness and mercy. He doesn't want us to walk arrogantly as though we are God. Because all those things rob us of joy, which robs him of glory. So if you're a believer already today, understand that God has more for you. And that more for you is found in others knowing his righteous acts. That's where your most joy is. This is why we get joy out of serving. This is why we get joy out of giving. Because those things enable more people to know. And I don't ever want it to be said that people didn't know because I didn't show them. Because I preached Jason, but I, I preached Jesus and I lived Jason. So God, I pray that you would empower us to live this out. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.